Okay, folks, welcome to another episode of the Coastal Advocacy Adventures podcast. I'm here on a beautiful, beautiful morning in Beaumont, Texas with famous author, radio host, uh, editor, um, founder of a university, <laughs> founder of, 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 of an outdoor entity. Founder of God's Outdoors TV, father, husband. Did I miss anything? Um, revolutionary. Revolutionary. Uh, I don't know flounder revolution. <laughs> uh, wow, I need to hire you to be my PR guy. Yeah, that sounded pretty good. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm here with Chester Moore. Chester, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Oh, Shane, man, we've been we've been friends in the business for years. It's an honor and privilege, and anything, of course, involving CCA is near and dear to my heart. So. I'm glad, so glad to have you. Yep. So glad to have you. It'll be fun. Have me talking about the outdoors for a while. This well, cool. yeah, I'm hoping you'll talk and I'll listen because that's the way <laughs> that's these easy. things have worked for me. It's like <laughs> I just sit back and let guys roll with it. So, um, I mean, I do have some things that I hope we can get to, but sure. yeah, I mean, let's just see where this thing takes us. Mm-hmm. So let's start off in the beginning okay. uh, for you growing up. What was your first memory of the outdoors? My first memory of the outdoors is kind of a strange one. It's the first time I remember like a wildlife or anything is that there's two older, older guys that live next to it. They might've been six or seven years older and I might've been four and they brought over this big dead cotton mouth. They had shot with a pellet gun. And that's the first time I remember like an animal or the outdoors as far as fishing. I remember uh, fishing at the Port of Orange, which is now illegal. You can't even get in there. It might have been illegal back then. I don't know. <laughs> uh, uh, statue limitations. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I remember sitting on a white bucket on the side of the road, the Port of Orange, catching croaker with my dad. And I was probably around four years old, too. Yeah. And those are probably nice size croaker. Yeah, those for- ones up there, they were big. And I remember catching croaker. I mean, we were trying to catch anything that bit. And I was on bait patrol. You know, if I look back, it was probably catching gar bait because we were gar fishing all the time. Yeah. So yeah, I uh, I was I was trying to think about you know what we would talk about today, and and it for me it always I, I like to hear kind of uh, from people on how they got into the fishing industry sure. and into the outdoors and what what steered them in that direction and most of the time it's during their formative years sure. i certainly know that's the case with you mm-hmm. um going i think i was born loving wildlife yeah you know i mean it's the only thing i mean i go back if you my mom found a picture of me at like three years old in my bedroom and it was like you know star wars um and like animal hides you know fishing poles in the corner you know yeah. So it's been a long time, but uh, hunting and fishing with my dad was extremely important because I actually got to go into the wild, you know, and also um, getting to watch Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom on television with Jim Fowler and Marlon Perkins, um, Jacques Cousteau uh, specials on TV about the ocean, and seeing the movie Jaws, believe it or not. Uh, I was the kid who saw Jaws and wanted to get in the water. <laughs> so those are kind of things in my formative years that really made me um, think. I didn't know what I wanted to do. Maybe everybody wanted to be a marine biologist at some point. Yeah. Um, a zoologist. Um, but something involving wildlife, you know. And so as a, as a teenager, uh, I picked up music. I was a pretty good bass player. And I'm a very motivated, self-motivated guy. So I could form a band. Um, I was in the school band for like sixth to eighth grade, and I'm like, nah, man, this is lame. 
We got, you know, I was like, I can't do this. Not because quite it, heavy enough. They have rules and stuff, <laughs> and um, the girls like the rock guys better, so I'm going to start a rock band. But, uh, so I did that, but I always hunted, always fished, always loved wildlife. Got into wildlife photography in, like, 10th grade, um, and, started, and I always wrote. I was always good at creative writing. And when it came to about probably the end of my sophomore year, beginning of junior year, I knew it was time to think career for, for real. And I decided I wanted to be a writer. I was good at musicianship, but I was not a natural at it. I was a natural at writing and communicating. So I decided, well, if I'm going to do this writing thing, it has to be about the great outdoors. Because I could kind of merge the passions together. Yeah. And I started writing for the... Um, uh, the West Orange uh, High School Journalism newspaper. I forgot we called the Mustang Message, I think is what it was. And uh, I was always complaining because I had to write about stuff that was lame to me. I was always like, can I write about, you know, mountain lions? Can I go write yeah. about flounder fishing? No, you got to write about the new cafeteria. Come on. <laughs> you know. But it was a great experience. And we had a photo lab there and learned a little bit more about photography. And then I was already dating my wife when I was a senior, and um, Lisa. And... Um, her mother found a clipping in the back of the newspaper, and the clipping said, um, win a lifetime hunting and fishing combination license um, by writing an essay about hunting for Texas Parks and Wildlife. It was an event called the, it was the first annual, now defunct, Texas Wildlife Expo in Austin. Mm-hmm. So I won that, and I was a senior. I wrote about hunting, and uh, to this day, it was one of my better writings. I mean, it was really good. Um, what, was, what made that so good, or, you know, what, what stands out? What? at this moment in your life and your career, like looking back at that, what do you, what do you think um, helped you to win that competition? What was it about that, that piece that you did? Um, I'm a true believer, you know, and when I, when I say that is if I, 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 I'm not, I'm definitely technically the best at anything, uh, but I am a true believer. If I'm in it, I'm in it. And I, and I took myself on this particular essay into the woods and I was really in the woods. If you read that, you're, th- you, you, you're in the woods with me. You know? And it was the, probably to this day one of the best examples of like an experience piece I've ever written. And I wanted it so bad. And, um, and so I won. And then I got to go to Austin. I got to meet the governor at the time, Ann Richards. I got to meet my now friend, Ted Nugent, for the first time. Presented my award by Nolan Ryan, Hall of Fame pitcher and Parks and Wildlife Commissioner later on. Um, I got to meet a man named Paul Hope who was with the Texas Outdoor Riders Association and Texas Parks and Wildlife at the time. And he got behind the scenes in my career and kind of helped me out, lead me here, lead me there. So it was an extremely important thing. And then it was, um, let's turn this loose and see where we can go with it. You know, I, I had a lot of, uh, I, I, I was trying to, my, I knew my grandmother had a contact at the local newspaper. I said, can you get me on the phone at least with the editor? The answer is my call. And so we did, and, and she said, my grandson's going to call you about something. And so I, I made an appointment, and I brought, my, I brought some copy of my articles and some photography and it's my certificate of winning this award, and then a week later I'm writing my first newspaper column. <laughs> and what is that they call it, the portfolio? Portfolio, or yeah, it was a legitimate portfolio. <laughs> and I had, all, I had a picture of a red wolf I'd taken at the Texas uh, Zoo in Victoria mm-hmm. and an article I'd written about wolves and wolf hybrids and um, – I think I had a redfish article that I had written, a sample article, and um, here we go. So it was just uh, let's go, let's 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 climb that mountain. Let's just keep going and see where this goes, you know. And so by the time you that was that was right out of school. I mean you. Yeah, I mean literally, I'm, I found out I won the essay like maybe July, 
mm-hmm. between my senior year and freshman college. And by October, first week of October, I have my first published article. And, um, and I also, at that same year, had won an article about the, uh, an essay about the First Amendment. I won that for, a, for the same newspaper. So they, they kind of had, oh, you're the kid who won that essay. Yeah, you know? yeah. So, so what, would you, what would you tell kids these days, maybe that hopefully some are listening, will listen to this podcast, that want to get into outdoor writing and, um, or outdoor photography? What's some advice you'd give them? Uh, yeah, you know, it's a completely different world than when I started uh, because of the technology. Um, then if you were a photographer and you had really good photos, you might be the only game in town, but now you can go Google and buy public domain photos really cheap. So, uh, there's a lot of different, there's a lot more opportunity, but a lot less opportunity at the same time. So my advice would be figure out exactly what you want to do. Let's say you want to write about fishing and hunting. That's what you want to do. You just, you'd like to write fishing and hunting. Find one area you are extremely good in that you can dominate. You can be the man, the woman in that area, but learn all the other areas too. Mine was flounder, right? So, um, but I was also adept at waterfowl, deer hunting, hogs, you know, redfish, speckled trout, conservation. Be well-rounded and um, bug everybody, harass everyone till they publish you. And if they're not paying you, harass them till they start paying you. <laughs> um, get published everywhere you can. Um, get in front of the camera. Learn how to do editing behind the camera. Get a podcast going. Be guest on other people. Um, be very well-rounded, but find an area of absolute specialty for you and have that as kind of your right hand. But let your, like your left hook, you know, let that be everything you got, everything else. Just yeah. You're going to throw it in there. Because if a magazine, like say Texas Fishing Game, but maybe you send us a query and we, or we have a query list of things we're looking for, um, you know, don't, don't turn it down because, well, I'm not really that good at red fishing. Who cares? You might know somebody who's good at red fishing you can quote. Yeah. That's how that works, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So um, a work ethic, show up early, you know, stay late, and um, work smart, you know. You have uh, so many, there's so many platforms out there now where you can, you can do a lot of things on your own and start posting your own mm-hmm. content mm-hmm. and getting, you know, establishing a name for yourself. Mm-hmm. But um, I certainly think that, like you said, there's a lot of opportunities, but there's also a lot of people out there putting out a lot of content. It's, so it's, it's hard to it's, make that it name. It even for impacts like us at Texas Fishing Game. Every single communication entity in the great outdoors has been, in, in the media in general, has been impacted by podcasting, uh, blogging, YouTube, uh, everything. It's changed the whole face of it, but you have to embrace it. And be really good at it. And um, you just have to not, and you not have to really care what people think. Because um, everybody's a, a, you know, is a warrior on their, on their keypad. Yeah. Right? You have to have thick skin. And you have to just plow at it and go for it. And, um, and I'll tell you a really good simple thing is to get a writer's market. You can buy the book in the reference section. You can go to Amazon or go to the reference section of Barnes & Noble. Buy a writer's market. That has virtually every paying publication in America in it. And what they pay and what they're looking for. I've used them for years. And what the that, title is called? A, a writer's, writer's market. market. Yeah. Okay. And um, you can see they, they, the photography they look for, what they pay, all that kind of stuff. And what that can do is get you sending out queries via email to actual paying publications. And there is a difference in the resume material when you go from having a YouTube channel to having a 
broadcast channel or to having a, um, a blog you write that's really good, but you're actually writing now for Tide or whoever, you know, Gulf yeah. Coast Fisherman, whatever it is. So uh, keep at it and just send, you know, be willing to go and do anything to get the job done. And so what do you think's made you successful at this point in time in your uh, you've got so many irons in the fire. It's, it's <laughs> yeah, hard to, to think. Let, let's pinpoint <laughs> it down to your your media yeah. career. Uh-huh. What do you think has made you so successful in that? I think there's a couple of things. The grace of God. Um, I shouldn't be where I'm at. I'm not one of the people in the establishment. I never have been. I think he wanted me here for a reason. I think that I'm a true believer. And, but when I say that, I mean that I I believe in what I'm doing. You know, I think that shows. I think you can't read an article of mine or hear a radio broadcast and not think that guy really believes it. I mean, I think that you can't fake that. No, people uh, can read through the BS. And they know yeah, yeah, they can't fake that. When I, you know, yeah. when I read a, you know, a Pat Murray story about him uh, plugging away on the flats for something, I know Pat's there in the article and he's really doing it. Or uh, if, I, if I listen to uh, a radio broadcast and I hear a guy who's just talking about his wildlife experience, I know if he's really there, you know. And the other side of it is that, I am a wildlife specialist, so there's been a lot of people in the business that can tell you a whole lot more about how to rig a lure, um, and that has a very important place. A lot of guys that know how to get the gun ready and what particular round is going to work at 300 yards for mule deer. However, there hasn't been a whole lot, up until now at least, that can tell you um, what's going on ecologically that makes that work. Um, why a flounder is in a certain place at a certain time and what it's doing, um, why that certain condition in the water, why the tidal flow when it turns around to incoming changes. So I think it's been the a passion and the knowledge of the ecological and the biological side of it in the article. So if I'm talking about topwater trout fishing, in that article I'm talking about how they um, – approach the lure and why they approach the lure the way they do i talk you know those kind of, i think that's yeah. set it apart a little bit you know well you uh we we did a flounder podcast with wayne pedigo and kevin burns and you know they accredited you know your flounder book um on their success in in that particular wow. fishery wow and and for wayne um i mean he read the book mm-hmm. and then he started you know, wow. you know, he got hooked wow. on it. What an honor. And so he goes down um, He goes down to San Luis Pass. He lives up, up in northeast Texas. Northeast Texas, yeah. yeah. And he comes down for two months at a time just to go after flounder. That's pretty cool. Kevin came to Flatfish University. Flatfish University, yeah. And uh, was a graduate, proud graduate. And um, yes, he's used a lot of, of exactly what you're saying, not only the techniques, but the reasoning behind the techniques that's, you know, made them better, better flounder fish. You know, uh, the, the greatest conversation I've ever had about fishing was with Rick Clun. Rick Clun, in my opinion, is the greatest bass fisherman I ever lived, four-time Bassmaster Classic champion, you know, become a personal friend over the years. And I'm on the water with Rick Clun, which is freaking me out anyway. I'm a fanboy. <laughs> and I'm throwing crankbaits, and I'm, like, trying to watch every crank he's doing to figure it out, you know. And I was doing an article that ended up being in Bassmaster at one point, and um, I said, Rick, what is the – one thing the young guys now have over you guys that have been in it when you started, and what is the biggest disadvantage they have? And this was really telling. He said the advantage they have is they came into it understanding technology. The technology was kind of developed as we were in it. They just kind of came into technology. They know 
how to do everything on the graphs and run all the spots. But what they don't have is the instinct, a lot of them. He goes, but the ones that will combine the instinct of knowing when you feel that temperature drop a little bit, there's a barometric pressure change, the fish might be doing this, that's the guy that's going to be a legend one day. Yeah. And I think that's kind of where a lot of this stuff comes from. And I, I just kind of naturally swing that way. And if you put too much technology in front of me on like, you know, I'm, I'm telling you, these graphs and these boats are smarter than I am. You know, I look at this stuff and I'm like, yeah, there's a fish. I can tell that part, but yeah. I can't figure out how to get there, you know. So it's more of an instinct and in, in, in biology thing to me. Well, I don't think you should ever use whatever kind of technology you have as a as a crutch. Sure. I mean, it has mm-hmm. to be. It could be a tool, but it can't be something you rely solely on. You have to have. Because if it goes out. <laughs> that's right. All right. What do you're you do? You're stuck in the middle of the woods. If you're running hot spots and know to throw. Um, let's say just some guy gives you, you're going down to Lower Laguna Madre. Hey, here's a dozen spots. Run all these spots and chunk a, a corky. Well, what if you go down there and your, and your graph goes out? And what if, what if something happens? You don't get bit at number six spot on a corky. Well, you don't understand that what's going on in the water is the water temperatures come up a little bit and that trout's metabolism is jacked up a little bit. Maybe you need to go to a top water and maybe he's looking for something to move a little faster. It just depends. Yeah. It's going to depend on what you, the knowledge of what you're doing. So. Well, that's pretty good insight for folks that want to want to get into 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 your world, at least from a media standpoint. Um, let's talk about let's talk about flounder for a little Yay. bit since you brought it up. Yay! <laughs> that th- you think? <laughs> uh, Texas fishing game. I saw. I had an email come across. That I think I can't remember what the title was. Something effective is is the flounder run canceled or delayed yeah. and. We had the same conversation a couple of weeks ago with uh-huh. those those guys down in San Louis Pass, and and yeah, I think it absolutely is delayed. Sure, we've it's a nice kind of warm day. It's probably uh, seventy five right now. It's nice right now. Water temperature the other day. I was on the water with uh, a coworker John, and I it was right after that cold front last week, and it was seventy three. Mm-hmm. I think it dropped down from seventy six. That's that's crazy. So. It really needs to be in the high 60s, I think, for the fish really start moving. Yep. Low 70s, high 60s. We and always kind of look we're for We're not it. there yet. When it drops below 70, we always kind of think something's going to happen now. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And we're not there yet. No. So uh, When are we going to get there? Uh, that's the question. It might be there for a day or two, but what's going to happen if it goes back up to 76? Yeah. Um, so it's really, it's going to be really inter- interesting to watch this season kind of unfold and um, – one thing that I've mentioned before with some other folks is like, okay, we've got this closure, which is supposed to help the fishery, but if, what if we miss the closure? I mean, what if we wow. miss the migration with the current closure? That's interesting. It's like this is something you've always got to, people have to think about is yeah. that they've got these dates like set in their mind. Okay, we can get back out on the water on December 15th or at the yeah. end of November, whatever the case might be. And um, I, I think just moving forward, we have to kind of be – realistic about the fact that winter does not always come no at on thanksgiving no it seems like last few years it's warmer and warmer a lot later into the year you know like four years ago we had that really cold winter in like january february but that's been it i mean otherwise it's been balmy and um it's certainly because i'll have people you know email me or send me a message on facebook or something or um, they'll be like uh is the flounder run started yet uh, or, or this is the one that gets me, are the trout running? And I'm like, well, when you hear the term run, that is a migrational thing. Trout don't run. That, what they're saying, are they biting? Are they yeah. starting to bite? Yeah. You know, yeah. And I wrote a whole article about what, what is a run. 
you know. But with the flounder run, it's never like all the fish leave at once. It's a trickle, and then it starts, and there's a big push. Mm -hmm. But if you don't have the – I always tell people, don't look for Pacific cold fronts. They do a little bit. You want the Arctic blast. The big Arctic blast is what typically sends them out. But we haven't had the Arctic blast. Uh What's it, the 17th today? 16th, 17th? 17th. So – it's interesting out there. Are the there are flounder still in the marsh right now? Oh yeah, and they're still pretty far up in the marsh in some areas. Um, so um, if you're listening, and we don't get that Arctic cold blast before, then you might want to consider going where you were fishing back in September. You might pull some big fish out of there. No, I think still going back, like you said, to the marsh and the bayous and fish those points and those drop offs and you know the same kind of strategies you're using earlier in the year mm-hmm. could be effective. During still. my my. Um, uh, work on flounder i was i kind of coined a few terms one of them was the first push and that typically happens late august early september that first little cold front that gets it down to about mid 70s during the day when the blue wing teal come in yeah and you start getting some fish pushing a little bit toward that front of those cuts and you get about two weeks of really good fishing and then what i then you have what i call the fall purge that's the if you can fish the cold like if there's a, an arctic cold front coming and you can get out in the water the day before it hits when it's all crazy south wind, you're going to slaughter the flounder because that barometric pressure is dropping, mm-hmm. and they go crazy, and they start to stage. We haven't had that yet. And if we don't, I mean, what's going to happen? And the bigger concern for me is what will happen with the spawn in the Gulf of Mexico. Water temperatures make a big deal on that. You know, how, how many fish are just going to hang around in the bay? You know? Yeah, yeah. Not only yeah, – not only – the lack of cold temperatures to actually trigger a spawn, but then also the ability for the fresh hatch, the larvae, to sure. survive in warm water because mm-hmm. they they have to be dialed in into a pretty tight uh, window uh, uh, window of temperatures. Mid sixties to mm-hmm. upper sixties is what they those larvae need, and yeah, if we're warmer than that, then it doesn't speak well for recruitment into recruitment. the base. You'll see that next year, the year after that, and the year yeah. after that. You know? Yeah. So uh, it's that's one of the things I like about flounder. It's pretty complex. It's yeah, absolutely. It's, you know it that is. better than anyone working <laughs> with them at Sea Center for years. That man, it is complex stuff. And um, you know, when I first started writing articles, you know, gave me an edge was one of the things was flounder, and people didn't know that there was a spring run that they actually came back in the spring. And like, mm-hmm. if they leave in the fall, they have to come back. Um, and uh, I've always said that's a lot more of a trickle what you got going on in the spring. It's not quite as, as pronounced. But, um, you know, this may be a heck of a winter flounder fishery, you know. Yeah, you may not have to have to leave the bayou <laughs> exactly. this year. <laughs> exactly. Yep, yep, yep. Why do you, so why, for you, I mean, you've made a name for yourself in many different, uh, many different ventures, but certainly it sticks out. I mean, it's in bold print on flounder. Oh, yeah. So why uh, – did you do that intentionally, or is it just a love for the fish? I mean, it's what both. draws you to them? It's both. Um, I think out everything I do usually. Um, when I first got in the business, I'm writing, and I'm getting some a little bit of success on the hunting side initially in terms of writing. And I'm like, um, I submitted a flounder story. And the guy uh, emailed me back and wasn't sure if there really was a spring run I was going to talk about. And I said, trust me. You know, and I got a really good response. I'm like, hey, that works. But my favorite fish since I've been a little kid has been flounder. Uh, my dad and I were in a, like a 14-foot aluminum boat on the side of Highway 87 between Bridge City and Port Arthur, very near where the first flounder were released in Texas there. 
by TPWD C-Center staff. And um, I had a Zebco 808, and we had a box of shrimp. The old white box you had to soak in the water. Uh, mm-hmm. and, at the, and we were out of shrimp, and I wanted to stay. And Dad's like, we're out of bait. But there was one little bycatch hardhead in it. And I said, Dad, can I hook that on there? <laughs> he said, you're going to catch anything but a crab on that. So I put it on there, threw it out there. Well, all of a sudden, Rod goes, start reeling in. And it was legit. I mean, my dad even said this later. It was a legit seven, eight-pound flounder. Got him right up to the boat, and he did the typical flounder thing. Opened that big old mouth, spit it out at me. And I was like, it, from that point, that became my Moby Dick. <laughs> you know? And I was they have. And I'm after, I'm after this flounder. But that really got me a fascination for flounder because Dad had kind of told me what you do. I noticed when you threw the rod out, you kind of reeled it a few feet, and then you set it down, and basically you got hit, you know, and dragging for flounder. And that became something we did as a teenager, go out on the Louisiana shoreline of Sabine Lake, places like Willow Bayou, Johnson Bayou, mm-hmm. Bridge Bayou, and drag for flounder, you know. And it became something I got pretty good at, and I, I just studied the species a lot. And when I saw there was an opening for it, I ran with it. And then I met my friend, Captain Skip James. Yeah. Captain Skip James had a bigger impact on my career than anyone else. Um, uh, Skip, I call him like a crazy uncle. And Skip had been involved in fishermen. He taught me so much about the business. And then with me and him kind of paired together for a while, uh, it was on on flounder. Because no one could fish him like he did. And no one could ride him at that point like I did. So it was, you know. It was it was a nice marriage, and I, I still see Skip every once in a while. Good, good, because that was one of our first uh, interactions together. Because you were you were working hard to help the the hatcheries, yep, you know, with their flounder program, and you were instrumental in, in the early stages of that program. And so, yeah, we got to go out with Skip, yep, and uh, some CC, different CCA folks, and um, catch some flounder. And so, yeah, Skip always had he had the uh, the glow in the dark, twister tail, twister tail, take a little bit of shrimp, tip it on the tip it on the hook. He taught me that one, you know. I was more of a live mud minnow guy, you know, <laughs> and he taught me that one, and it was on, you know. And uh, I remember me and Skip during a tropical storm in 1998, sitting in a bayou, catching about 50 flounder in an hour. And it was the most cr- crazy fishing of my life, you know. Uh, so I owe a lot to Skip. Skip's a good man. Uh, always been a good friend and um, did a lot to raise awareness for flounder as well. But those early times, I, you know, when I, when I first got involved with Skip, he goes, you know, Chester, you got to look at some of these numbers. And he had some numbers for the American Sport Fishing Association at the time. And I'm like, something's not right. You know, the flounder are kind of, you know, they should be. And then I started talking with CCA way back in the day about bycatch. It was a big issue. Mm-hmm. And, and I said, like, we've got to get a flounder stocking program going. You know, we have reds and specks and everything else, so let's go for flounder. And we just started kind of lobbying and harassing and trying to catch fish. And then <laughs> CCA got really behind it and TPWD got behind it. And, you know, so uh, it was also a cause. It wasn't just a fishery. It's a cause. But one of the things I like about flounder, it's kind of a fish of the people. If you really want to go catch big trout, you pretty much, most conditions, unless you go fish in the surf in summer, you pretty much got to get a boat and yeah. go somewhere after them. Redfish, to an extent, the same way. But you can sit on a lot of piers and a lot of shorelines with very inexpensive tackle and catch flounder. Yeah. And the good news is they taste better than the rest of them. <laughs> <laughs> and in a normal year, yeah, um, <laughs> you know, right now is the best time to just stand on a bank. Yep. 
close to the Gulf. Beautiful and, thing. Uh, catch thump. flounder all day long. Live for the thump, man. Live thump. for the thump. Yeah, my problem always is the patience aspect <laughs> of it. And, you know, Skip tried to teach me when I was a boat with him a couple of times, and I never quite got it down. Talked to the guys the other week about, you know, what they – what they do, and uh-huh. they learn some of the tactics from you. So why don't you talk about that after well, man, the thump? I'm hoping that I can write another flounder book because I've learned so much since then, you know. Yeah. But um, my basic tenet is this. If I'm fishing with a typical Carolina slash fish finder rig with a mud minnow or a mullet, um, thump, wait 10 seconds, set the hook. If I'm fishing with a plastic like a curl tail or a gulp, Thump, wait two to three seconds, set the hook. If, I, if I'm reeling that lure in and I just feel a tick on the line or it stops, I'll wait 20 seconds, set the hook. Um, and working with Jeff Kaiser with the UTMSI, University of Texas Marine Science Institute, he said, dude, you're right about all this. And he sends me <laughs> these videos like six years ago of feeding these flounder. And um, when they took a shrimp, which is uh, which will fold, even a big shrimp will fold up. Yeah. It was a big jumbo size, like put on the Barbie shrimp. This flounder just sucked it up, went right down his throat. But with the Spanish sardine, which probably was a five-inch Spanish sardine, but it was like an eight-pound flounder, it hit it, and then it kept moving it around in its mouth till it got it to where it could go straight down because their, their mouths are big, but their throats aren't so big. Yeah. It had to move it around. So when you feel that thump and you feel little ticks on the line, that fish is trying to position it to get down his throat. Mm-hmm. So that's the reason we wait on that stuff. Um, and then there's those times you have it where they, like, knock the slack out of your line, and you're, like, wanting just – and you're, like, it's really difficult, even for, like, three seconds on the lure, to be patient, you know. You know and, I um, can be patient all day long hunting. I mean, it's just I've got it <laughs> – I'm programmed. But when yeah. I'm fishing, I'm like, I want to set that hook. Yeah. And I just it's, can't. It's, it's hard. Now, sometimes it works out. You just, bam, set the hook, and you're there. But my, I'm trying to tell them that could always be the, that's the next state record right there. It's the next state record. Be patient. Do what you got to do. You know. I should know this. Where is the record at right now? Still you know thirteen. It? Thirteen. Still. Yeah. Was it like was it thirteen something? It's thirteen even. Two yeah. even. Oh, okay. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's thirteen. That even. was here. Herbert Endicott, 1976, Bean Lake. Yeah. Um, actually caught it in one of the revetments on Pleasure Island, but it was logged at Sabine Lake. Um, the legend is that he cleaned a bigger fish the day before from in there. Wow. So that's kind of interesting. Uh, and somebody saw like the head and told him, you better go weigh that fish. Now, I got to hold a fish at UTMSI, live fish, bigger than the state record. It was 1310, I think. And there's a picture of me floating around out there holding this beast. And I have a replica. The fish died. ended up dying a month or two later. Yeah. And I have a, a, and I said, keep the body. And they sent the body to the fish mount store in Florida who did our Flounder Revolution replicas. And I actually have a, a, her body, a, a replica of it. And, it's, and you look at it and go, I would have a stroke if that fish hit me. And, I was, and oh, you, you, the thing swims up and looks at me, I'm going to die. You know what I mean? It was just so huge. Yeah. I mean, that's the biggest bow of some boats out there. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Huge. It's a halibut. I got to see that fish, and, yeah, it was pretty special. Yeah, the, yeah. it's the thickness. I mean, I look at this thing, you're like, oh, man. So yeah, that was amazing. a special moment, you know, getting to, to hold that fish and see that and uh, hand feeder. That was pretty cool. Those, they're just so fun. I mean, they're, they're really unique. Mm-hmm. They've got this just crazy life history. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're a special, special fish, and I'm hoping, I'm hoping we can – we can keep that fishery um, despite this warm <laughs> weather that keeps coming well, our way. You know, um, it's always interesting. I, I, I've, I've, there are some guys that will fight you if you kill a big trout. 
I was with some guys one time who are these, I call them trout snobs, right? Buddies of mine who are like, all, it's just big trout purist. And if you keep anything over 20 inches, you are an you're anathema. You are evil, right? Which is fine. It's great conservation and throw those big fish back. I was with some of these guys one time. We kept, he gets like a five-pound flounder goes right in the ice chest. <laughs> this is before even all the restrictions. I said, what are you doing? He's like, we're eating that sucker. I said, okay, Mr. Conservation. I said, there are way more of those big trout than there are those big flounder right now. He needs to go back. You know what? He didn't go back. He didn't make him anything. And trout that. produce way more eggs than flounder yeah. do. He and, you know, and there's another. What, how blessed we are on the Gulf Coast. What an interesting and enigmatic fish, a trophy trout. I mean, just the way they change their behavior once they get big. I mean, they're very yeah. elusive. So yeah. a lot of fun here. Now, thank God big redfish are still cooperative when they get big. <laughs> you know what I mean? I've caught a whole. You always catch redfish. I've hold a, caught a whole lot more big redfish than I have big trout. <laughs> redfish will save a fishing trip. Yes, they will. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I do. I've got some other things we want to get to because I don't want to eat up your whole morning. No, we're good, man. I can talk. I got. I got a while. Okay. Um, how have, you've been in the industry for? I'm not give away your age, but you've been in the I'm industry. I'm 43. <laughs> For a few I'm still young in the now. industry, man. Yeah. How's it, have you seen it? Where do you think it's going, and how have you seen it change? Um, On the media part of it? We could start there, sure. But I want to get to the biology part of it, Okay, too. the media part of it, um, it's just the Internet changed everything. Um, you got a whole lot more cooks in the kitchen out there, which is great for one thing. In some ways, it kind of shoots down some of the elitism. People that want to hold other people down, you know, if you have a good voice, sometimes there's a chance to rise up. It also makes it more difficult to make a living in the industry for all of us because, um, and this is in the regular media, not just the outdoor media as well, because there's so many more sources out there. So you got to be real creative, a lot more creative, stay on your toes a lot. You can't relax. You got to keep moving. Um, on the other side of the equation, uh, you know, conservation has now become almost like a lifestyle with coastal fishermen in particular. They finally caught up with the catching up with the bass fishing world. Mm -hmm. I think what really started the modern conservation mode of fishing was Ray Scott and BASS back in the day. Because they figured if we're going to have make this thing big, we've got to put some of these fish back. They didn't initially do it. But um, with the bass fishing craze and catch and release, and now it's what it is in saltwater, it, I think we finally don't have to argue with people as much that um, some of these brood fish are important, these bigger fish are important. I think we finally kind of reach that level i think on the angler side that's been a big step and i think that's going to help secure a future for the fishery i think it's a lot easier dialogue with people now you know yeah okay so what about um uh, you know the stick to the sports fisheries i guess but what about the trout red fishing and and flounder fishery maybe just specific to sabine lake but what have you seen change for better or for, for worse, I mean, where do okay, you let's, think? Okay, let's talk Sabine Lake. Um, I think hurricanes, Ike and Rita, dramatically changed the fishery. Um, literally, I mean, changed the fishery itself. I mean, there were sections of Sabine Lake that were sawed off like a buzzsaw sawed them over there on Ike in particular. Um, I think it changed the bottom of some of those areas. They're a lot different. Uh, the biggest change I've seen um, in was probably in the mid-90s was when they took the nets out. You know, when Louisiana and all that and the nets came out, that made a dramatic difference. Um, our trout, our redfish fishery is just golden, always has uh, been. Uh, trout fishery 
has never been what it was on size, in my opinion, since the late 90s. We had a period of really big fish in the late 90s, early 2000s. But number-wise, when most of us go out to catch fish, you know, to trout to eat, it's probably never been better. You know, but uh, something, and I think there are times in fisheries where maybe a certain genetic of that fish die away or something happens or something transitions where you'll see it hasn't quite got to that point where there's still those, more of those really bigger fish on Sabine Lake. Um, Still a great fishery, still a great trophy fishery. I think it's quality-wise, if you're, you know, um, a a big trout purist, probably hasn't gotten to where it was in the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, Flounder, uh, you know, it's been up and down, you know, numbers. It's been up and down. It's just been up and down, up and down. But one thing I have noticed, there is a trend toward more flounder in the rivers, which is really interesting. And I, and I really don't believe, I mean, it's not a scientific observation. I haven't put any tracking devices on them, although I would love to. Um, <laughs> I, like to I would track everything in wildlife. I hate tracking humans, but I would track You're every tra- animal known to man. I've seen more fish in the river and staying in the river longer in the Sabine River and in parts of the Natchez River which is really interesting I don't know what that says biologically but and I'm seeing more fish up those rivers and staying in the river habitat have y'all been dry here now uh, this year we haven't it's a completely different year really wet but a lot of it has been dry years where we have more fish so there's maybe more bait yeah, yeah. Well, and, and you walk on the shad two years ago in the yeah. river I mean but it was it's just uh, the number of flounder in those rivers has just been huge you know uh, untapped resource, really. I get to. I used to get to talk to the ecosystem. In fact, I'm going to go visit with them this afternoon. The ecosystem guys for Parks and Wildlife down here, and um, I think they, they, at least with redfish, they've said the same thing. They're to their ears. Yeah. In redfish. Yeah. I mean, you guys got a lot of redfish here. Mm-hmm. A lot of redfish are stocked here too. Incredible numbers of redfish. I just we just did an article last month in Texas Fish and Game. I wrote about the stocking of fish on the on Texas and it was mind-boggling the numbers that we looked at on redfish and trout too really yeah I mean I think within the next 15 years they'll probably be to one billion (laughs) with a b one billion fingerlings released they're approaching 900 million right now so um, that's staggering. it was really and you look at that you think about the jump from no stocking 30-something years ago, 30, 32 years ago, to what we have now. It's, cre- it's credible. Yeah. Credible leaps and bounds. Yeah. And uh, I can trace back the enhanced stocking of trout numbers from TPWD to enhanced numbers of trout anglers catch. Um, but I think something happened in the early 2000s to where some of that upper, upper, upper end of trout genetic or something's gone or changed or moved or something. You know, I don't know. Just a personal observation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I want to get – I got one more question, then I want to get to what you're doing right now. Okay. Which is very important. Um, but So I'm, I'm in this uh, role as advocacy director for CCA Texas, mm-hmm. and um, what I would like to know from you is what can I do or what can CCA Texas do to better reach out to its to its membership or to people that maybe even non-members, but what can we do to better advocate for the state of our fisheries in in Texas? And I'm not trying to say that the state is in bad shape because it's not, but I'm just you saying. You always got to be upgrading, though. 
You know, if you're not yeah. upgrading, you're downgrading in the long run. It's a great question. Um, one of the things I would say is I think your CCA is very much on the right track with this dioxins thing. I think looking at some of these pollution issues um, has, number one, it's extremely, extremely important. It's a health issue. That is, the other thing is I think that is a way to grab the casual fishermen and support from the general public. Because what happens in the hook and bullet realm is that there are people who don't want to talk about pollution because it seems like a, a green issue, which is stupid. It's a health issue. So I salute CCA for its stance on this. But I think there's a great opportunity in water quality issues and habitat issues for to grab the casual fishermen and support from other people outside or interested in the health and quality of the bays and the ocean who may not really care about how many redfish or trout are stocked, but they sure do care about having clean water and they sure about having a great environment for wildlife. I think, I think creating a little bit broader net there, and I think some of these issues are the pathway to that. In terms of the more rank-and-file, hook-and-bullet, Texas Fish and Game readership type of person, um, you know, the people that I've worked with my whole life, uh, I think one of the things is kind of what you're doing in this advocacy position, putting a face to it. Any organization as large as CCA can become, people look at it almost like a government, right? So yeah. being able to put a face to it and say, look, we're people who fish just like you. And engaging them one-on-one -on -one and, and giving them more information on things like this podcast is huge because people are suspicious. People are suspicious of us at the magazine. In this day and age, people are suspicious of everything. So I think one of the things that you're doing with this advocacy role and this podcast and thing is opening up more of a dialogue and then doing what you're doing with me, just asking me what I think. And I think that's a wonderful thing. And I think this is going to be a growth period for CCA and allow CCA to, to throw a bigger net out there. And I think, I think you guys are, are, are positioned to throw a bigger net and catch more fish. I've got to. I've got to be. Uh, I got to admit to something here. And be honest with you. I. Uh, we were fishing one time on Sabine Lake together, and uh -huh. um, you had mentioned. You, you said a line to me. You asked me. You phrased it in a question, but I took. Me. I took it as. <laughs> <laughs> I took it as a as more of a quote. But you basically said the the key to conservation is education. And yes. I've said that now on like two at least two of these podcasts. Yeah. So thank you for that. Well, I'm glad <laughs> I had something useful to say. Yeah. <laughs> but it's so true. I mean, I, I'm glad to, you, you think we're, at least with, with this sort of thing, we're on the right track because that's what we want to do. We really want to educate folks on issues, what's going on, what people in the industry are involved in, uh, what are some things they can help, and we'll get to that in a second here. But um, key to education. Key to conservation is education. education. That's true because people want to know and be informed. They don't always know how to get that because there's so many, once again, so many voices now. This guy says this, this guy says this, and there's millions of voices now because of social media, right? And most of them don't know what they're talking about. Some of them do, but a lot of them are just, you know. So I think what this is an opportunity in these things to really engage people and be transparent and give them good information and uh and let people make informed decisions, you know. All right, so let's roll into the second half of this of this podcast. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Might not take that long. No, but I, I 
I really want to uh, spend some time talking about God's Outdoors and TV and Kingdom Zoo. So um, you obviously are, are uh, extremely passionate about this ministry, mm-hmm. and um, you're doing great work. Um, I'm very blessed. Not only here locally, but, you know, you, you travel with this thing. Yeah, we're, so, yeah, we're leaving in, as soon as this podcast is over to go to Texas Children's Hospital to visit one of our kids in a program we're going to talk about. So uh i love christ i love children love wildlife and my wife and i have found a way to wrap that all into one so so uh, were you were y'all just talking and lisa you and lisa uh-huh. were you laying in bed one night like how did the calling come to you <laughs> all right this is, a, yeah, this is a good question um i really felt the holy spirit wanted me to write curriculum so in 2012 at about april I wrote 13 weeks, a 13-week curriculum for like a kids' church for the summer. I taught it at my church, pretty big church, community church in Orange. And um, as I'm working on it, I thought, you know, I need to have videos for this, like a little two-minute video, because I've done I've done a lot of TV over the years. I've done Animal Planet and all this stuff, and I'm like, I'm pretty good on camera, so let me get some animals and go. We'll go catch a cottonmouth and show them on video, whatever it is. And then I thought, man, I could turn this into like a web series. And it ended up being God's Outdoors with Chester Moore, which is now segued into Kingdom Zoo. Um, and that's kind of the heart of our ministry. And now it's ended up, in, and this is proof of God's work. In 2012, we had a Doberman Pinscher. That was the animal that we had. Now I have 69 species of exotics from around the world. Okay, it's crazy. Uh, and we have the Kingdom Zoo Wildlife Center in Orange, in the Pinehurst area of Orange. You can come visit those animals. We'd open two Saturdays a month. We do outreach. We work with um, places like Girls Haven, Buckner Children's Village. The animals are almost like therapy animals, outreach animals for kids that have been through a lot um, to bring the light of Christ to them. And then we do a thing called Wild Wishes, where we grant exotic animal encounters for children with terminal illness or have lost a parent or a sibling. And we've done everything from wolf encounters to giraffe encounters. I mean, you name it. And we're going to be doing on December 3rd or 24th and 25th Wild Wish. And it's a lot of fun. It's an adventure. It's literally a zoo. We're legally a zoo. I mean, we're licensed as a zoo. So uh, my life is a zoo. You know, you see, we bought <laughs> about two we years ago. A, a little kid at community movie. church came up to me and handed me the video. We bought a zoo, the movie. Mm-hmm. I wanted you to have this, Mr. Chester. And I was like, little did I know, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's been an incredible, incredible adventure. And it's our life calling, really. You Who's know? your team? Uh, me and my wife, Lisa. And then we have a wonderful board of directors. We're a 501c3 ministry. Uh, we have uh, a pretty good chunk of volunteers, like the, the Williams family, Mike and Sharon and their daughter. Um, we have uh, my friend Sam Naylor's taking care of the animals while I'm gone today. We've got a lot of people out there. Our friend Marcy is starting to, she's a Wild Wish family. Her daughter's our Wild Wish ambassador. She was our fifth wish. And now she's our ambassador. She comes and help grant the wishes for their kids. Okay. Yeah. So um, uh, it's crazy. I mean, and, and the coolest thing that happened this year with it was we took a little boy named Amos. And you can see his picture right here with a giraffe to meet a giraffe at the Y.O. Ranch. And when I say meet a giraffe, you go into the giraffe pen, a 200-acre pen. 200 acres is their <laughs> pen at the Y.O. Ranch, Y.O. headquarters. And these giraffes come out. And he had an incredible – this little boy lost his father. A week later he loses – two weeks later he loses his home in the floods. Um, so we took him out there and we did this. Well, we also got to see like all the cool animals. Well, as on the way out, 
me and that boy and his cousin Jackson, who was also a wild wish kid who went with us, um, are driving down the road and we're talking about, they start talking about how much they love buffaloes and how cool buffaloes are. Well, we see a herd of longhorn cattle out in the distance. And I said, boys, you want to sneak up with me? And uh, I think the little girl Emily was with us too. And so we took the cameras. We're going to sneak up because they're like the biggest longhorns I'd ever seen. Let's go photograph them. Well, we're photographing the, the longhorns and a buffalo walks out. <laughs> and I said, boys, God is with us. He's in a buffalo. And then the most amazing thing I've probably ever seen in the wild, a white buffalo walked out behind it. Oh, wow. The legendary white buffalo, the most revered animal in Native America, the rarest of the rare, a white buffalo comes out and looks right at us. I happen to actually have my good camera with me, so I got a good photo. And um, those boys and that girl looked at each other, and they were, I was probably hollering louder than they were. I mean, it was like a life experience for me. And then I ended up going back uh, two months later and uh, finding the white buffalo again. We, we, we did a mini documentary called Search for the White Buffalo. And um, that's going to be out here real soon. That's all of our so awesome. Various things. And we had a high school girl, Jennifer Ellis, a girl we've been mentoring. And she's the one who helped produce it and direct it with me. So kids are involved at every level. We have kids going doing hospital visits and wild wishes with us and doing ministry and street ministry and everything with us. So the animals are a pathway to yeah. help broken children, you know. And it's cool. Like We use everything from our, you know, all kind of animals. But, I mean, it might be a boa constrictor that reaches one kid. It might be... Uh, my prairie dog that reaches another kid. You never know which, what they're going to be into. It's just such a, you know, just as people are, can be vessels um, for whatever message they're trying to send, you know, you've, you're, you're utilizing these, these animals to, to spread, um, spread the message of Christ. And I just, I think it's fascinating. And I commend you for, oh, man, thank for you. stepping out. And because I'll say this, Doing something like this can be a risk. Oh, yeah, sure. You know, professionally. Sure. It could be a risk uh, socially. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, mean, the good news is I don't care. Yeah, there you uh, go. That's the good news. <laughs> well, you know, not that I don't care not to make a living. I'm very blessed at Texas Fishing Game. Our great supporters of everything we do. I'm, that people like CCA have been great supporters of things we do, my radio station. But there is a risk, especially in American culture today. But I'm not going to stand in front of any of them on Judgment Day. So I'm not, I'm not that yeah. concerned. Um, and I love the children too much, and I know what this does. I've seen the impact of these encounters with these kids to not go for it, you know. Um, I'd, rather, I'd rather be wrong socially than I would to miss that opportunity, and I'll give you an example. The second wild wish we did is a little boy named Shane from the Bolivar Peninsula. He had leukemia. Praise God, three years later now, he was our second wish. Um, he's cancer-free. He wanted to meet a wolf. Well, I took him to a facility in New Braunfels, a snake farm at Animal Park, and they had a wolf. They were very gracious. They allowed him to play with a monkey and a, a fennec fox, and he got to be a zookeeper for the morning before they opened up. And he got to pet a wolf through the fence and feed it dog biscuits. Mm-hmm. But he couldn't go in there with this wolf because it would jump on him. It would just jump him. But it was awesome. But I had a friend of mine with a wolf dog that's got just enough dog in it to be legal. <laughs> and um, he, I said, can you meet us at the park down by there? I said, I want to have lunch, and his, his wolf dog's named Lucy. And I had done a couple of video and photo shoots with Lucy, so I knew she was friendly. But all wolf dogs are typically very um, aloof. They got more, they're, they're, the more wolf they have them, the shyer they are. Yeah. So I figured, well, maybe I can hold her on a leash. She can get a photo op with the kid. He liked that. Well, my buddy David got, David Cleaver, who has a Lucy, got way into it. And one of the address of the family, he sent him buttons to where, like, Lucy is my wolf sister. You know, just, <laughs> it was awesome. Well, 
we're at the facility. We come out. We thank the people at the Snake Farm for their amazing hospitality. We walk out. And there's a crowd of people, and David pulls up. He opens the door. Lucy runs out. This is so not her. She runs through the crowd and sticks her head directly in the little boy's chest. Buries it in Shane's chest. Wow. And starts loving on him. Now, before I can give him Wolf Protocol 101, he gets it in a headlock. I love you, Lucy. <laughs> and I'm praying under my please. But Lucy followed Shane and my daughter around for an hour in the park, never left her side. That's neat. What, did you did you um, post that or or send that out on social media? Because I want to. That story sounds so familiar to me. We've told the story a couple of times about Shane and the wolf encounter. Um, and we've had photos of that. There's a photo floating around with me with Shane and his family. How long ago was that? Three years ago three when it happened. Okay. Well, in February it would be three years. Okay, okay. So, Because um, I looked it, up the price of wolf dogs. It ain't cheap. It's man. not cheap. <laughs> uh, but it's incredible. We have a Bengal cat now. And a Bengal cat's half Asian leopard cat, but she has this rare snow leopard pattern. And Beautiful cat. She's, she's going to be part of a wish here pretty soon. Uh, we had a, a wish for a little boy wanted to meet a snake. His sister wanted him to do a horse ride. She never rode a horse. So um, we took them out, and they had lost their parents. That was, that, was the, that was the reason. It's loss of parent or sibling or terminal illness. And uh, the, the family that he's living with all came, and they're not big snake fans. Well, my friend Cody Conway is, does presentations a lot, and he, and he takes out a Trans-Pecos rat snake. Beautiful trans-Pecos rat snake. And they get to see the trans-Pecos rat snake. And they're all, wow, spooky though. It's a snake. It's about three feet long, four feet long. Then he takes it like a six-foot-long red-tailed boa. Oh, that's really big. And the kid thinks, oh, this is awesome. Well, there's a third. <laughs> this whole crate is a box. <laughs> and he opens it up, and a 14-foot-long uh, reticulated python shoots out of the box. And it was awesome just to see their kids screaming <laughs> yeah and, the kid, and the, you know people are running but the kids like Jalen the boy who was the wish kid was just in love with it you know it was a very docile snake so um I we we adopted a a shelter dog this past June mm -hmm. and um it's not quite working out the way we anticipated <laughs> so if you have a need for a rat terrier mix no <laughs> I, I've got the perfect animal for Do you, you know how many animals I turned down on a weekly basis <laughs> Do y'all do? Uh, do y'all grant any? Uh, do you do any trips? Like kids wants to go catch a flounder, or you know, we haven't. Uh, we don't do any hunting in our in our thing. It's just our, our fishing yet. But like one of our wishes, one of the places we go to has an incredible stocked pond. So when we go there, we usually bring rod and reels and go bass fishing. Yeah, yeah. So um, we 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 had one kid that kind of wanted a, a wilderness adventure. We went out and did that. You know. So, uh, but it's mainly, mainly animal encounters, and uh, the Lord put it on my heart that nothing will be withheld from us on animals. We've done everything from white tigers to, you know, to zebras. And, and what did you say, 63? How many species? We have, we, have, we have 69. 69. And if we don't have it, we, a lot of our wishes, we go to people who do have it. Yeah. Right? We don't have a giraffe. We're not there. We're not even close to that level yet. But uh, we're going to be there one day. And um, so we went to the Wyo headquarters out there, and they had two incredible zebras. I mean, uh, they have zebras too, I'm sorry, giraffes. And we got to go feed the giraffes. So how can folks uh, that, that hear about this or that, well, first of all, how can folks look you up for um, Kingdom Zoo? Kingdom Zoo on Facebook. Just okay. Kingdom Zoo on Facebook. At Kingdom Zoo on Instagram. Uh, and um, KingdomZoo.com. And I also have a new blog I'm doing. Um, uh, all of my wildlife writing, other than if I freelance at some big magazine, are going to be at uh, WildlifeJournalist.com. 
uh, kind of my hook and bullet stuff's all at Texas Fish and Game. The wildlife stuff's going to be at wildlifejournalist.com. I like to do investigative. That's your website? Yeah. I okay. like to do investigative type stuff. I've always had blogging and things that I did, but I've kind of wrapped it into one place. Okay. And, and people can subscribe to our newsletter, and they'll get all the wildlife journalist updates, but they also get all the Kingdom Zoo news. So it's kind of all in one. Okay. And they can do that there. And, and folks that want to support your ministry, how would they go about yeah, doing that? Yeah, man. Go to kingdomzoo.com. There's a donate link right there on the top and you can donate with paypal or credit card or whatever we are 501c3 it it takes a lot of money to do what we do i mean we're got two bill yeah we got two buildings we house and feed 69 species representing about 120 animals Um, a lot of them are very weird diets we got a toucan that my wife has to spend an hour a week just mincing up the food and it has to eat 10 different fruit species a week sprinkled with tea leaves for a certain thing because they drink out of the cavities of trees and there's tannin in there and there's tannin inside tea leaves so i mean it's that specific in a lot of this stuff you know and the and sometimes it, people will come open the freezer in our wildlife center and, and want to throw up because there's a whole <laughs> rack full of frozen rats and mice you know we've got it all and we appreciate all the support, um, and people can learn about what we're doing. Or maybe there's a child that's experienced a loss of a parent or a sibling or, or has a terminal illness that loves wildlife. Well, we can help make a wild wish come true, you know. What's uh, – so we mentioned at the very beginning, yeah. you know, listing off all the things that you've done. You've been extremely successful and, and, and busy since you're a wee little lad. Yeah. <laughs> busy yeah i'll give you that one what's what's something that you ha- that you want to do but you haven't done yet or that you haven't had wow. the opportunity to do man that's a great question if you'd asked me that 12 years ago i'd have said cage dive with great whites that was my thing and i got to do that saw four great whites in the pacific that was mind-boggling still kind of wrestling with that in my head one of them turned and looked at me and it was like oh it was awesome did you see those videos that came out this past summer in the cage in the cage yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and i worried that might happen on my dive because at one point um I looked up and like the pop of the cage was kind of flapping. I'm like, oh, uh, ooh, that, not, that doesn't interest me anymore after seeing that. You know, really, I just want to be able to affect more children for the Lord. Um, but if I had a personal encounter, because I love wildlife encounters, uh, a personal wildlife encounter, I would probably, I want to go encounter a blue whale. I want to see a blue whale and want to be in the water with a blue whale. That would be mind boggling. And I would like to go, because my favorite animal on the planet is actually a jaguar. Um, I got to radio collar cougars with TPWD in 97, done a lot of work with big cats. But I would love to go with one of the research teams and they go radio collar and study uh, jaguars in Belize and those places. And they have the opportunity to to document that and show the work they're doing because it's a lot of work and it's very dangerous. I think that would be cool as a wildlife journalist to get to go go do that. And um, just, uh, you know, I love the encounter. Man, the day I drive by a woodlot and don't wonder what's out there, the day that I look over Sabine Lake from the Rainbow Bridge and don't go, I wonder if there's a flounder on that point. I need to go check. I need to pick a new career. Yeah, go check. Because that's the thing. I'm still I'm very blessed. I know that. I, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate the, the support from people like CCA and yourself and Texas Fish and Game and KLVI Radio, all the publications I've written for. And all the people who read the articles and listen to the show and everything I do, I have great supporters, and I am honored and I'm humbled and privileged that people will listen to this crazy kid, because uh, I'm still mentally about 14, uh, from Orange, Texas, you know, um, and who, um, 
had a dream one day of working in something he loved and has been doing it for 24 years and is just privileged to do it, man. I really am privileged, and um, it's an awesome thing to do. And, uh, you know, I lost my dad two years ago. You knew my dad real well. Yeah. Lost him on a hunting trip to South Texas. And um, if anything will put in perspective the power of the outdoors, it's that. I mean, he was on a skinning rack with me, skinning the second biggest deer he's ever killed in his life. And uh, he died of a massive heart attack right there in South Texas. My friend Robert Shearer's ranch. And I had to drive home that night. Tell mom and all that. I'm driving seven hours home. I had a lot of time to think. That's, it had to been a tough, tough drive. It was. And I have a, my article in Texas Fishing Games about I'm going to drive back this year. I haven't been back, you know. But I thought about that time together that we had. And I think, man, you know, beyond all the politics stuff we get involved in in the outdoors, beyond all the business things I work through, the fact that we can share that wildlife habitat, that hunt, that fishing trip, that encounter with someone we love is extremely important. So if you're listening to this and you're really wondering what to get that outdoors lover in your life this Christmas maybe, maybe just time. Give them time with you. Give them time in the outdoors. Maybe you can't afford a South Texas hunting trip. Only reason I did is a friend of mine owns a ranch. I was shooting cold deer that were bigger than anything I've killed in East Texas. <laughs> and um, take them out fishing. Go to a cool wildlife management area and take a camera and photograph the deer. Just give the gift of time because that's the one gift that we don't have a lot of. It's the most precious thing we have is our time. And give that to the people that you love this year. And I promise you, you won't regret it and they'll be better for it. They're not going to remember what you bought them. No. I mean, they're going to remember the time you spent with them. And it's, it's, I think it's great that you said that. You basically, um, uh, we, we had a podcast with Jay Watkins, and, mm -hmm. and you guys have said the same thing, just kind of different variations mm -hmm. of it. But he said his kids, his boys, they have all these memories and all these moments together. Mm -hmm. And one day when they need them, they're going to have those moments to pull upon. Absolutely. And, and you certainly have those, made those with your father. And um, I, I can almost guarantee you that the time you spent in the field, the time you spent on the water mm -hmm. with him are one of the uh, most precious memories that you have of him. No question. Other than the shock and horror of what happened at that last moment, my last memory of him was joking about the deer he shot because he's supposed to have shot a seven-pointer call buck. And, I, and they pull up on the four-wheeler, and there's this giant eight-pointer. <laughs> and I'm like, cool, who shot the eight-pointer? Me. I glassed it for 30 minutes, and the rancher didn't care. You know, he, just yeah. went, he didn't want one of his mega bucks. Right? Yeah. But, and, and I'm like, I remember going, Dad, how bad do you feel? He goes, well, not that bad. Uh, you know, <laughs> but just seeing that smile on his face, because the only reason we got there, I never would have met Robert and his family if hadn't been in this business. So this business helped my dad achieve dreams he never could have afforded. And that's a memory I'll never forget. My dad and I joking about that big buck and how much he loved whitetails. And um, going out there one time, and he shot the biggest buck of his life two years previous to that. And it was a mutant. It had three main beams. It was like, oh, weighed wow. like 250 pounds. And to see my dad's face when he got to do that, it was like, that was awesome. So those are memories you can't. And, and just my little girl is not much of a fisherman. The patience level is not there. But her first fish she ever caught was like a two-pound bass friend of mine's pond and to see her giggling and watching that fish watching her that fish flop around and all that was i'll never forget that 
So you know, the face lights up the world, you that's, know, when that's they it. when they have that experience. That's, the that's what it's about, man. And the rest of the stuff really doesn't matter that much. You know, we gotta be conserve our resources, protect that. That's important. But all the rest of the interactions, eh? That's the important stuff. Well, I again, I think what you're doing with Kingdom Zoo is just. Uh, I want to commend you for it. Thank you, man. I think I'm, it's spectacular, I'm, I'm, and um, I really hope that folks listening to this will uh, be encouraged to get involved and you know you. maybe make a donation. You know, we would appreciate it, man. It takes a lot of money. Money makes the world go round, and uh, that's what it takes us to do this. And any donation of any size is appreciated because it's tax deductible, and uh, it, it's making an impact on kids. I mean, we personally ministered in person to 10,000 children this year. Wow. At events around the state. With a team of a handful. Yeah, about a dozen altogether, different events. So That's uh, impressive. And uh, so it, we're, have, we're having an impact by the grace of God and by the support of people who care about what we're doing. And um, it's, it's fun. So check it out. People have questions about it, they can always message me. Email me at chester at kingdomzoo.com. That's a good way to get a hold of me. Okay. And I uh, appreciate people checking out the new blog, wildlifejournalist.com. And for sure... Don't forget to read Text Fish Game Magazine. Absolutely. And, um, Every CCA member gets an online there, subscription. There you go. And I tell you what, uh, Texas Fishing Game still rolling along, a great publication. Um, honored and privileged to be editor-in-chief. You know, the things we're doing at Texas Fishing Game are, are kind of groundbreaking on some of the articles and things. Uh, really in-depth stuff happening in 2017. Um, and a lot of great stuff on the website. I mean, we have a newsletter that goes out on Thursdays. It goes out to 49,000 people's inbox. I mean, that's pretty cool. That's a, that's a broad reach. My buddy so Elliot Donnelly's working on that, and I write a lot of the headline stories for it. And uh, so make sure and check that out. Subscribe to that, and uh, good stuff. How many how many writers do y'all, uh, contributing writers, do you have for uh, Fish and Game? I mean, Who? several dozen. I, I would probably say we're close to two dozen, you know, okay. that we – Kind of routinely you got our columnists and some bloggers and stuff that we brought on, and uh, a pretty, pretty. You have to be pretty good for us to bring you on, because we're we have a kind of a certain vision that we're mm -hmm. looking for. If you mm -hmm. kind of can figure out how to contribute to that, but we're always open to new ideas and new people, especially on the website of it. You know, okay. so uh, you can just go to techfishgame.com or email me, and we'll find out maybe if you have some ideas how we can get you contributing to something. Well, that's good. For, good for folks to know that. Yeah, fishgame.com, lots of crazy stories on there, and it's where you see my flounder stuff. So if you want to see yeah. flounder stuff with my byline, go to fishgame.com. Well, is there anything that um, that we haven't discussed that you want to that you want to talk about or? Man. Any closing thoughts on you know? Clo well, you're 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 opening yourself up here. Closing thoughts. Uh, well, no. I can always edit it out. So. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> nah. Um, just how awesome the experience of being in the great outdoors is. Like you can't take the power. We're in God's creation, and to be able to feel the thump of a flounder bite, to um, see a two huge bucks locked up in a fight, territorial fight. Um, to hear the whistling of blue-winged teal wings over the duck blind. You know, to be out on the Gulf of Mexico on a calm morning as the sun's rising, you're going out to fish for dolphin or mahi-mahi. And um, all of those things are incredible. And embrace them, love them, and support what CCA is doing with conserving them. Because conservation is the wise use of resources. When we catch and do renewable fishing, it is a wise use of a resource. And never neglect the fact that we can have an impact by supporting groups like CCA. And never neglect the moment. Never neglect whatever, whatever fish you catch, whatever animal you hunt, whatever experience you have. 
never take it for granted because it's amazing. And one day you're not going to be looking back on, you know, how many hours overtime you worked and whatever. But I guarantee you're going to reflect back on, man, remember when I caught that 30-inch trout? Remember when that thing sucked that big topwater under like it was nothing? You'll remember that. And hopefully you remember your son or daughter at your side celebrating it. That's what the outdoors is about right there. There it is. Folks, the one and only Chester Moore. Chester, thank you so thank much. Thank you, Shane. Appreciate you, brother. I appreciate you, man. Thanks. All right, folks. We hope you enjoyed that conversation with Chester. Be sure to tune in next week as CCA Orange County President Scott Bandy and I sit down with Texas Parks and Wildlife, Carrie Jelpy and Kirk Blood. Carrie and Kirk work out of the Port Arthur Marine Lab for the Coastal Fisheries Division, where they are charged with the fisheries management of the Sabine Lake ecosystem. We will talk fishing in Sabine Lake. We'll talk sharing a border with Louisiana. We'll talk oysters, crabs, and careers with Texas Parks and Wildlife. You do not want to miss this episode. Please help spread the word about the Coastal Advocacy Adventures podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or TuneIn Radio. Thanks again for listening, and as always, remember to stay coastal.